And I serve specifically in our college and young adult ministry called Kairos. My wife and I have been serving here for about a year now, just over a year. And I just want to let you all know we, we love our, our opportunity to serve here. It has been such a joy to be able to serve in that ministry. And we are, just, we are grateful for all the people we've met in the college and young adult ministry. We are grateful for all the people that we've met in the larger church body as well. Personally, I, I love getting the opportunity to preach every Tuesday night at our, at our ministry. I love walking through the scriptures with students and with young adults. I love walking alongside these, these young people who are just passionate and, and, and hungry to grow in Christ. I love thinking through challenging questions with these young adults, especially as they're just being overwhelmed by all of the questions that are coming from the university and all the questions that are coming from the culture and the society. You see, as a, as a pastor who, who deals a lot with, with college students, I find myself having conversations about what they are learning in the classroom, about the ideas that are being floated in the classroom. And one question that comes up over and over again is, is whether or not morality is objective. Is the idea that morality being objective, is that true? You see, on the college campus, this question is being raised on a regular basis. Is it fixed? Is there an objective standard that makes something right or wrong? And as I consider this question with so many students who who are coming through our ministry, I like to point out that there is something driving that idea. There's something driving those questions, right? What is behind those questions? Is morality fixed? What's driving that idea in the first place? Why is it that professors urge students adamantly to abandon the notion that morality is objective? What's driving so many students to hear that message and respond with affection for that message? What makes that message attractive? Well, I think often what happens is people feel attention. They realize if there is a moral code, that means I need to keep it. If it is true that I should not lust after women, that means I should not be going on my computer and looking at pornography. And people don't like that sort of tension. Not when it hits so close to home. I don't want someone else to tell me what I can and cannot do. I certainly don't want some all-knowing God telling me what I can and cannot do. I want to decide what is best. I want to decide what is right. I want to be the one who chooses what is true. I want to choose my own morality because when I decide what is best, I don't have this lingering problem of this all-knowing God who's going to hold me accountable for everything I do. It's convenient. It's convenient to abandon these ideas. But is that actually an option? 
Do we have the ability to choose what is right and to choose what is wrong for ourselves? Do you have that right? Do I have that right? Well, when we come to our text in 1 John this morning, we see that there is a standard of morality that is outside of ourselves. We don't choose what is right and what is wrong. Society doesn't choose what is right or wrong. God does. Morality is rooted in God's character. We see that in our passage this morning. God is light. And more than that, God is concerned with the way that we live. In fact, he calls us to walk in the light with him. But I recognize that does prompt a problem. If God is the standard and we are called to live up to that standard, what happens when we fail to do so? Well, as we see in our passage, God shows people mercy even when they fail to walk in the light. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through 2, 2. Let's begin in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Notice in our passage, we see John is setting up distinctions between the people of light and the people of darkness. And we see two distinctions here between these two types of people. See, both of these, these camps, these two types of people respond to the fact that God is light in diametrically opposed ways. But we see here that there is hope. There is hope for those who walk in the light. So in order to receive this hope, you need to be a person of the light. We'll begin in verses 5 through 7. Here we see the first distinction between these two people. The people of the light walk in the light. There's a moral divide separating these two different types of people. But notice verse 5 sets the stage so that we can rightly distinguish between these people. Verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So in order for us to understand how to walk in the light, we need to know what the light is. Which brings us back to the idea of God being the moral standard. John's using a word picture here. He's comparing God with light. 
He's comparing the righteousness of God with the concept of light. So think for a moment with me. What does light accomplish? What's, what's the purpose of light? It reveals. Light expels darkness. It exposes imperfections. It establishes distinctions. You know, we avoid certain neighborhoods at night specifically because we know what happens when, when darkness is there to hide sin. Without the exposure of light, there is the opportunity for hiding. So people roam the streets at night in order to accomplish what their evil hearts desire without facing ramifications. And here in our text, we see that John is comparing God's light to righteousness. So if God is light, that means God is perfection. He is holiness. If you want to see what righteousness looks like, put on display, look no further than God. He is the standard. You see, in God, there is no darkness at all. He is not tainted by sin. His plans are not affected by unrighteousness. His thoughts are not clouded by the confusion of hate. His actions are not manipulated by his own ulterior motives. His cares and concerns are not hindered by his selfishness. There is no darkness in God whatsoever. He is light. He's the standard of perfection. And this does bring bearing on your life and on my life as human beings who happen to live under God's domain. You see, we live in God's creation. And if he is the standard, that means something for you and I. Either we can live in line with God or we can walk in darkness. Those are our only options. Verses 6 and 7 present this to us. Here we see two different paths that explain the people of the light and the people of darkness. So we'll begin in verse 6. Here the emphasis is on those who walk in the darkness. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Feel the weight of what John just said. Feel the weight of that statement. Do you realize that there are millions and millions of people in the United States who claim the name of Christ? Far more people claim the name of Christ than actually show up at church every Sunday morning. Far more people claim the name of Christ than actually live out true Christianity, walking in the light. I, I assume with how many people are even in this room, there are people here who claim to be Christians but do not have genuine faith in Christ. They claim Jesus with their mouths, but their lives demonstrate their insincerity. But notice the tension here. This does prompt attention because we all sin. So how can we discern between Christians who fall into sin and those who live in the darkness? What's the difference between these two types of people? Because maybe you're wondering, wait a second, I struggle with sin. How do I know which camp I fall into? Well, I think it's helpful to point out in verse 6, the word walk 
it actually expresses a continuous lifestyle. This is a progression. It's an ongoing pattern. You see, those who walk in darkness live for their sin. They cherish their sin. They love it. Now, it's also important to realize that walking in darkness is also marked by an attitude towards your sin. There's a lack of concern that you are living in rebellion. If you've ever read the book of Proverbs, you've seen this this character who comes up over and over and over again. He's called the fool. And the fool is a perfect example for us of someone who lives in the darkness. Notice the fool's attitude about his sin. Proverbs 10.23. Doing wrong is like a joke to a fool. Those who walk in darkness think of their sin as, it's a joke. It's just a joke. They, they make fun of the fact that they're living in darkness. Proverbs 13.16. The fool flaunts his folly. He finds pride in the way that he lives. He finds pride in the fact that he's living in the darkness. You see, a life in the darkness is marked by bold, willful, unrepentant sin. Those who walk in the darkness do not heed God's word. So when you claim to have fellowship with God, but you live in the darkness, you are actually made out to be a liar. In reality, you have no fellowship with God. If you are not pursuing Christ, if you're not walking in the light, your Christianity is actually unverified. Essentially, you're walking around with a fake ID. You flash it when it's convenient. But hear me out, you will be found out. There's one place where you're going to try to enter into that room and you're going to flash this fake ID and it's not going to grant you access. Don't be fooled. God knows the difference between a sheep and a goat. And if you try to shine that that fake ID when you walk into his presence, he's going to know. Don't be found out to be a goat. Become a sheep. It's as simple as turning to Christ. Get the real ID badge so that when you arrive at the foot of Christ, you can enter into his presence with confidence. He hands them out freely, free of charge. Here's an ID. Look in verse 7. Here we see a depiction of true sheep. These aren't goats. These are the sheep. Here's how the sheep lives. A true child of God walks in the light. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So this is the flip side. Now we're talking about those who are walking in the light. This is a a diametrically different lifestyle than what we just saw in verse 6 when we were looking at those who live in the darkness. This group is walking with God in the light. They pursue righteousness. They strive to be holy. They see the standard that God has set forth with his character and they they pursue that character. They want to be just like God. That's what marks a true child of God. They love Christ. And look what we see here. Those who walk with 
Christ in the light, they have fellowship with one another. Now, when I first read this, I would think that he was going to say, you know, if you walk in the light, you have fellowship with God. But he says, those who walk in the light, this group has fellowship with one another. What's going on here? This is essential for us to understand as a church. We need to understand what true fellowship actually is. You see, biblical fellowship is walking in the light together, in community. Sometimes as Christians, we, we think that we're engaged in fellowship just because we're simply spending time with other Christians. And that idea is insufficient. So if we call just hanging out with Christians and going to a movie or going out to dinner or playing softball together, if we call that fellowship in and of itself, then our understanding of fellowship is, is off. Now to clarify, those sorts of activities, they can be good. And it's great if you play softball with other Christians, right? But don't pretend that that's fellowship in and of itself. You see, true fellowship happens when you bring a, co- a, a, a fellow Christian, a brother or sister in Christ, out to coffee. And you talk about the ways in which you are growing. Talk about the ways that you have failed. True fellowship happens when you open up to your small group and you begin to share what God has been teaching you through his word. True fellowship happens when you, you hang out with those Christians after the softball game and you begin to, to tell them what God has been teaching you on Sunday mornings or, or in a Bible study midweek. True fellowship happens when as a community we are pursuing light together. Now look back at verse 7. Notice how we see here that when we walk in the light, we actually gain assurance that the blood of Christ will cleanse us. Now that is an encouragement. Like that is such a comfort. Because you probably don't need any convincing of this. When you begin to strive to walk in the light, as you get closer to God and, str- and strive to, to enter into his light, that light begins to to shine into the crevices of your heart and you begin to realize how much darkness is hiding within your soul. And you're thinking, I need need some sort of hope because the closer I get to God, the the more depraved I realize I actually am. The closer I get to God, the more I realize I am in desperate need of a promise just like this one. See, for those who are walking in the light, there is cleansing. But I have to point out, this doesn't mean that you are cleansed by living a righteous life. This doesn't mean you are cleansed because you live a holy life. That misses the entire point in the passage. You see, in the very next verses, we see that the people of the light willingly confess their sins. So John doesn't have this idea of perfection in mind. No, he's pointing to the fact that As the people of light, yes, we strive to walk in holiness, but as the people of light, we are also profoundly aware of the depth of our sin within our own heart. We are profoundly aware of the darkness that is hiding within our lives and in our souls. And we seek Christ for cleansing. And this brings us to the next section of our passage. Notice in verses 8 through 10, the focus switches from walking in the light to confessing the darkness hiding within our hearts. 
verse eight. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So here's the second distinction between the people of light and the people of darkness. The people of light confess their sin with confidence. So this contrast is still at play here. Notice in verses 8 and 10, the people of darkness, they conceal their sin. The people of light confess it willingly. So we're going to begin in verses 8 and 10. This is a picture of those walking in darkness. Look at how they have this wrong perspective. Both verses 8 and 10 begin in the same way. If we say we have no sin. If we say we have not sinned. You know, although their sin is obvious, they deny its reality. I don't know, maybe they're blinded to it. Maybe their pride has them so puffed up that they aren't willing to confess it. Whatever the case is, we know this, that they will not confess the reality that sin is hiding in their heart and therefore they are in the darkness. Now I hope that none of you here actually believe that you are without sin. That's my hope. None of you actually believe that. But I do recognize that even as the people of light, sometimes we live as though sin is not prevalent in our hearts. We go days without confessing our sins to God. Weeks without apologizing and reconciling with our loved ones whom we have sinned against. And that's dangerous because when you fail to recognize that sin is within your heart, there are consequences. Look how verse 8 ends. If you say that you have no sin, you have deceived yourself and the truth is not in you. Let me just be point blank here. If you think you have no sin, you are delusional. You are irrational. You are not paying attention to reality. I mean, take a moment to think about the last, let's take a a small sample size here. The last eight hours, last 12 hours. You can even count like the hours you were asleep at night. So we're only talking about a few hours here. Can you really say after you assess your thoughts and your actions and your attitudes, can you really say that you have not acted selfishly? That you have not acted dishonorably? That you have not acted hatefully? That you have not acted unlovingly? Those who claim to be without sin do not have the truth within them. This sort of deception is actually a sign that you are not a part of the church. You do not actually belong to the people of God if this is your attitude. It's a strong statement. But the truth of the gospel does not reside in people who do not recognize the prevalence of sin in their own hearts. Now notice verse 10. Notice what verse 10 says about those who are claiming to be sinless. It says they make God a liar. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I'm left wondering, what 
What in the world could that possibly mean? How can we make God a liar? Well, think about it. When you claim to be without sin, you are denying what is clearly taught throughout God's word. Romans 3.23, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. You see, this is a major distinction between the people of light and the people of darkness. The people of darkness fail to take God's word seriously, especially when it indicts them. Um, Prior to moving to California last summer, my wife and I lived in Louisville, uh, Kentucky. And I just have to throw this out there. It is Louisville. It's not Louisville. It's not Louisville. So, I mean, I know a lot of you play baseball around here. So if you have one of those bats, it's Louisville Slugger. Um, If you can say it in one syllable, like all the better. So I went to a school called Southern Seminary in Louisville. And uh, back in the 1990s, the trustees of this school appointed a man named Al Mohler to become its newest president. And the reason they appointed this man to be its new president was because uh, many of the professors at this school had begun to abandon the clear teachings of scripture, especially as it pertained to morality. And so you had, I mean, professors at this Christian school um, who who clearly uh, were advocates active advocates for ideas like homosexual marriage, just ideas that are not found in scripture, contrary to scripture. And now thankfully, over the course of the next few years, Moeller, Al Moeller, began to lead this school towards a transformation. And that transformation was necessary. So many of these old professors ended up leaving. Some of them willingly and, um, yeah, some of them not willingly. <laughs> Nonetheless, they were gone. <laughs> But by God's grace, this seminary is now led by God-fearing, scripture-loving, godly professors who are seeking to impact this next generation of pastors to influence the church all across the world for Christ. It's It's an amazing story. And now, the reason I tell this story is because it demonstrates something about people who walk in the darkness. Think about this for a moment. These professors and these students who were following in their wake, they weren't just uh, uh, without understanding of what God's word clearly taught. They weren't ignorant of what God's word spoke. No, they were claiming to be without sin. They were claiming that these sorts of lifestyles were not sinful, even though they knew what God's word said. So how do you get there? You know, sometimes the people of darkness, they take God's word and they begin to manipulate it. They begin to mutilate clear teachings in the Bible in order to justify their own opinions about morality. No longer is the word of God the final say. My interpretation of the word of God is the final say. So you can't tell me how to interpret this passage. I'm going to interpret it for myself. I know you think it's clear, and I'll just manipulate it a little bit, massage it a little bit in order to make it fit my presuppositions. You know, sometimes we, even as the people of light, have this tendency to do the same exact thing. Sometimes we don't like it when God's word begins to press in on our hearts and on our lives and confront us in our sin. 
And so we begin to tweak God's word, reinterpret it in order to justify ourselves. And so I ask, are you doing this in any way? Are you allowing this sort of idea to take hold in your heart, justifying cheating on your taxes, justifying the gossip that that you are partaking in at the workplace? Are you allowing that to happen in your own hearts? As the people of light, we cannot allow that to happen. That's a mark of those in darkness. So let us flee from those things and walk in the light. Let us have the attitude of the people of God as described in verse 9. Look at how verse 9 describes the people of the light and how they, they regard their sin. They have a completely different demeanor. Instead of concealing their sin or pretending that it doesn't exist, the people of God confess their sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it seems to me in this passage, confession is kind of a big deal, right? The people who receive God's forgiveness are people who confess. So what does it mean to confess? What does it mean to confess our sins? Well, at its most basic meaning, the word confession merely means to agree with someone else about something. You are confessing that you, you agree to this reality. So as a church, we make all sorts of confessions. We just sang an entire song full of confessions. We believe in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe that this God is three in one. Those are confessions that we as a church, we state them together. So we're agreeing with one another that we hold these things to be true. We, have, we confess that Jesus is the Son of God. We confess that he is the only way to salvation. We confess that it is only by his blood that we get to enter into God's presence. So what does it mean that we are called to confess our sin then? I mean, if confession is all about agreeing with someone about something in particular, then what does it mean to confess our sins? Who are we agreeing with, right? Well, when we confess, we are agreeing with God about our sin. We are agreeing that what he says is true. We're agreeing that our sin is, it's hideous, it's vile, it's destructive. We agree that our sin actually separates us from our holy God. And when we have this sort of attitude about ourselves and about our sin, that actually leaves us in a beautiful place. Because when you have that attitude about sin, you are left completely helpless. And believe it or not, that's exactly where you want to be. (laughs) Completely helpless, apart from the intervention and grace of God. You need to feel helpless. You need to sense your vulnerability. You need to recognize your spiritual bankruptcy apart from God's intervention. Because when you sense that, it is only at that moment that you will feel compelled to run to God's throne room and seek his grace. So the more helpless you feel, the more out of your wits you feel when you approach God, the better. Surprising reality that we see in scripture. That's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel calls a weak, weary people, a morally bankrupt people. That's what God 
does. He calls those sorts of people to himself through Christ. And so I ask, what in the world are you waiting for? Maybe you're here this morning and you are walking in darkness. If you confess, all you do is come to the altar and seek God in confession and you receive access into his throne room. You're given the ID, the, the, the real ID so that you can attain the access that you need in order to get into the presence of God and stand in his presence with boldness and confidence that you actually belong there. You're not a goat. You're a sheep standing before your God. What are you waiting for? Confess your sin now then. Walk in the light now. Don't allow yourself to grow apathetic. Fight against your sin with fervency. Immediately through confession. And guess what? We can do this with confidence because... As we see in verse 9, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we can come to God with confidence as we confess. We can come to God with certainty that he is in the business of forgiving. But I ask, how can God do that? How is God just to do that? How can a holy God whose perfection just emanates, how how, how can he allow people to come into his presence who do not share that same perfection? This actually leads us to the climax of our passage. In chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we find an answer to that. How does this pure and faultless God look past your faults? How does he look past your impurities? Through the person of Christ. The people of God receive assurance even when they fail because we have a Savior named Jesus Christ. And look what we read about this Savior. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now notice, John just summarized everything he he has just said. He wants the church not to sin. He wants them to walk in the light. But he recognizes something. We as the people of God are not perfect. So what happens when we sin? points it out to us. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So an advocate is someone who stands on someone else's behalf in order to plead their case. That's what an advocate is. You can can kind of think of an advocate as a lawyer. He's a defense attorney standing on your behalf making your case for you to the judge. So when we offer our confessions to God, Jesus Christ serves as our advocate. Now think about this for a moment. Jesus is the almighty sovereign God who is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Son. And so 
when he, that individual, is our advocate, what fear do we have? Now, if that is not profound enough for you, look at John 5.22. For the Father judges no one, but is given all judgment to the Son. So Jesus is the one who judges the world. And yet at the very same time, this judge is our advocate. He's our defense attorney. The one defending your case is the one who is going to decide on your case. You see how audacious this is? The judge is your lawyer. Imagine walking into that courtroom, right? You're standing outside the courtroom. You're talking to your defense attorney. He's giving you his strategy and how he's going to defend your case. And then you walk in, you take a seat, and you realize, wait a second, my attorney is, is the judge. This court is rigged. <laughs> but it's rigged in our favor. Our God is on our side. The judge has your eternal destiny in his interest because he's our advocate. How can he do this, right? How can he do this justly? Look at verse two. He's not only our judge, he's not only our lawyer, he is our propitiation. He is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the entire world. Now, I, I get it, you probably don't walk into the workplace and go to your coworker and start talking about propitiation, right? <laughs> Maybe you're like, I don't know if I've ever even heard that word before. Well, it's in the Bible here. And so we, we ought to know what this word means. So what, what in the world does this word mean? Like that's a lot of syllables. Well, here's what's going on here. When, when, the, when John says that Jesus is our propitiation, he's referring to the reality that our sin needs to be punished. God as a holy God needs to punish sin in order for him to be just. In order for God to be righteous, he needs to, to bring about a punishment for sin. And propitiation means Jesus bore our punishment on our behalf. Jesus bore it. And so when we walk into that courtroom, and we're looking at our attorney, our DA, and then we realize, wait a second, he's also the judge. And then you start to hear him make his defense, oddly enough, to himself. <laughs> What's his defense? What's his defense on your behalf? You can't judge this individual. I already took the judgment. I sat on death row for this individual. I sat in the chair for this individual. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ because Christ already bore the condemnation that you and I deserve rightfully. You see, we come to a God empty-handed and yet he gives us everything. We come to a God full of faults and he gives us faultless character. Not, not on our own. He gives us Christ. We come bearing the weight of our sin, in need of punishment, rightfully so. 
And yet our God, who is the judge and the lawyer and the, the prisoner on our behalf, he makes our case for us. So we can now enter into the presence of God with boldness. We can now confess our sins with confidence. We can have assurance that one day we will stand around that throne surrounded by a people coming from all nations clothed in white, clothed in purity. We have confidence that that is our destiny. If you are in Christ, brother or sister, there is no fear when we think of approaching the throne room of our righteous God. All we have is assurance. All we have is confidence. All we have is boldness. So confess your sins with boldness, not taking account of how heinous that sin may be, not taking account of how destructive that sin may be. Confess that sin with boldness because there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. We have forgiveness in Christ. So if you are in the light, confess your sin with confidence. If you are in the darkness, confess your sin with confidence. The message isn't much different. It's the same message going out to all people. So if you, if you do not know Christ right now, Turn to him in hope because forgiveness is available to all who call on the name of the Lord. And now I cannot go without hitting on the very last line of verse two here. Notice this grace is available to all, to the entire world. This is our hope as we set out in missions. This is our hope as we set out in evangelism. When you come to someone who's walking in darkness, who does not know Christ, and you start to sense this person is entrenched in their darkness, you can have hope and you can have confidence that God is willing to forgive even that person. Even your best friend that you... Stop talking to you because you realize he was walking down a horrible path. Even your daughter who you know is living a lifestyle contrary to everything God commands of her. You can have confidence that when you talk to her, God is in the business of forgiving. Even the wayward child, even the friend who is off the deep end, God is willing to forgive. And this is why we as a church here at Golden Hills, send out multiple teams around the globe in order to proclaim the good news of Christ because we are confident that God is collecting people from every nation to bring to his throne room. We are sure of this. And therefore, we send people to the ends of the earth. We send people to Chad, as we did a couple weeks ago. We send people to Thailand. We have a team there right now. This week, we're sending a group from our student ministries, uh, uh, ministries uh, there to go to San Francisco to the Tenderloin District in order to make the gospel known to a people that are lost without hope, feeling the weight and destruction of their own sin. This week, we're, we're going as a college ministry. I'm leading a team to the nation of Estonia because we know that God is willing to forgive. This is a nation with 2% uh, 
maybe 2% evangelical Christians, a nation that is, has wreaked the havoc of the Soviet Union's oppressive hand for hundreds of years, 100 years rather. 1992, this nation was freed from the bondage of, of the Soviet Union. And now it is filled with people who feel the weight of hopelessness. They know atheism and atheism only. They do not know the name of Christ. And so this church is sending out a a group from our college and young adult ministry to make known the grace of God to a people who have never heard about such grace. And so I was supposed to make this announcement uh, a long time ago, but I didn't. And so here it is. <laughs> After this service, we are going to have uh, two prayer groups going, out in the, um, going on out in the, the courtyard, praying for the team going to San Francisco and praying for the team going to Estonia. If you are able to, if you're capable of it, we would love if you joined us out in the courtyard in order to pray. We'll be there right after this service. I'd encourage you to come to that. Well, with that, with, with this hope that we have in Christ, let me, let me finish with a word of prayer. God, we do look forward to this day when we get to stand in your presence. We do look forward to this day when we get to walk with you in the new creation. Not affected, not tainted by the weight of our sin, but walking with you in righteousness, in perfection as we were created to be people for your own possession, created for you. We look forward to that day. And I pray that that hope would would encourage each and every one of us in this room to pursue you, to pursue your holiness. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.